Hello and welcome to the podcast for Patriots. I'm your host, Jim Fralick. I ain't rich, but I damn sure wanna be. Working like a dog all day ain't working for me. I wish I had a rich uncle that'd kick the bucket and I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it can buy me a boat. Our goal here with Podcast for Patriots is to educate, inspire, and assist military members and veterans in achieving financial wealth through real estate investing. I'm very happy today to be introducing you to Tom Rutkowski, who is the founder and president of Innovative Retirement Strategies based in Boynton Beach, Florida. Uh, Tom is a Marine Corps veteran, and he is, a, I want to call him a sophisticated investor. He's, he's pretty deep in the numbers, and there's really a lot to learn from him. So we're going to touch on it today in the podcast, but then um, encourage listeners to follow up on Tom's website because there's a really a lot to learn and a lot of good visuals there on his site. Uh, Tom is, has done a lot of real estate investing, fix and flips, owner financing, lease options, uh, tax liens, and I think one of his focuses is note investing, secure debt. Uh, but he does much more than just real estate. And uh, with that, I want to welcome uh, Tom. We have you here on the line. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you very much, Tom, for agreeing to uh, come back after my glitch last week. I won't belabor it, but for listeners, I did <laughs> I did interview Tom almost exactly a week ago, and I did, towards the end of our interview, exit and lose what was pretty much a magical hour of learning. So you all don't get to benefit from what I learned last week, but I'm hoping to... Uh, do a little tighter job with Tom and get some of the same golden nuggets out of him uh, that he shared uh, last week. So, Tom, I gave the listeners a little thumbnail about you, uh, but I want to turn it over to you to uh, add a little bit more about yourself, if you don't mind. Well, I went into the Marine Corps. I ran out of high school. August of 1983. Served eight years in the Marine Corps. My MOS was aviation radio repair. So I served in a couple of different units where aviation radio repair didn't imply uh, airplane radios. It's, you know, when rust on the ground, you air supports. Uh, They would call back to a DASC, a director air support center. And it's the radios in that little shelter sitting on a hillside or flying around in the C-130 up above. Those are the radios that I fixed. Gotcha, gotcha. Combat air support, another support from the ground. Excellent. So that was a tumultuous time, obviously, in America with uh, the Beirut bombing and other things. So uh, what was the interest in radio, or did the Marine just, the Marines pretty much tell you what you need to do? Based on no, that? I was foolish enough to go into the Marine Corps with an open contract, so I didn't have any MOS picked out ahead of time. I didn't have any contract bonuses coming. I was just a private. All of us guys that were dumb enough to go into the service on an open contract knew each other. And every time you talk to anybody, they would tell you, oh my God, open contract, they're going to be in the infantry. Yeah, you know, I was prepared for that. And when the Beirut bombing happened, I thought, oh God, I'm really going to be in the infantry, you know. Mm-hmm. And then uh, shortly after that was the invasion of Grenada, or maybe that was the other way around. But nonetheless, there were two significant in- things that happened while I was in boot camp that made me think infantry was where the Marine Corps was going to send me. But luckily, I scored very high on the electronics portion of the ASVAB. They were handing out MOSs. They told me I was going to 29 Palms to be uh, basic electronics school. Excellent. The rest is history. So <laughs> The rest is history. Yeah. So did you, had you been, well, two things. Had you been in, interested in electronics uh, before that? And then secondly, had you ever been to California before that? I had taken a course in high school called Based Electronics. So if there was anything that gave me a, the ability to have a higher proficiency score in that regard, it was, it was that one class. But, you know, it was something that interested me. Okay. And had I been to California, 
Yes, when I was in second grade, we vacationed out there. Okay. So going going back to boot camp was the, the next trip after that. Copy. So uh, where else were you stationed over that? Was it eight, nine-year period? Um, school was in 20, well, boot camp was in San Diego, Hollywood Marine. I went out to 29 Palms for about 14 months going through three different schools, basically electronics, radio fundamentals, and then finally a class on the particular equipment that I would be working on. And from there, I went to Camp Pendleton to uh, Mass 3, Marine Air Support Squadron 3, and spent uh, a lot of time out in the field from there with, with the DAS Director of Support Center. A year in Okinawa, and then from that year in Okinawa, I spent uh, about three months in different operations up in Korea, Bear Hunt and Team Spirit, and down in uh, three months down in the Philippines supporting some exercises down there, which names I can't remember anymore. Came back to El Toro, which is no longer there in uh, Orange County, California, Marine Corps Station El Toro. Okay. And that was uh, headquarters and headquarters squadron 38, H and HS 38. And the unit there is a tactical air command center. That's you know combat situation. That's where the commanding general of the air would sit and monitoring all of his air assets. Sure, sure. Yeah, I deployed quite a bit from there. Um, one trip to the Persian Gulf back in '88. Um, an exercise in Korea, uh, Turkey for. Uh, about three weeks in 88, and then uh, certainly Desert Shield, Desert Storm uh, in, in 1990. Okay. A lot of fun places. A lot of fun places. A lot of fun places. <laughs> Especially California. So uh, you get out of the Marine Corps, and uh, what did you decide to do then? How do you get from there to real estate? Well, I started going to school while I was still in. Um, so I, by the time I got out, I had finished the first two years of college um, at Irvine Valley College, just taking night classes. And then uh, actually when I was over in Persian Gulf, uh, Bahrain for Desert uh, Shield, the buildup, uh, that gave me a lot of time. So I actually had my, my girlfriend, fiance at the time, sending me books so I could kind of work my way ahead. Anyway, when I got out, I, I transferred to the University of California at Irvine, um, degree in economics. And then right out of there, I went into an MBA program back home in, in Wisconsin. I grew up in the Milwaukee area. So I've got an MBA from UW-Milwaukee in, in finance and specifically investments. And then I went into consulting. Okay. And there, I know, I know you had touched on before with me how you kind of got, um, how your background came in handy along the way. So could you describe that for listeners? Yes. Yeah, that's an interesting story too because, you know, eight years in the Marine Corps working on electronics. And then, you know, I studied finance and investment, you know, with the idea of being a financial advisor, stockbroker. And I, I take a consulting job instead to appease my wife. First day on the job, they sent me out to work on a project where they wanted to free up a senior economist that was, was down there. And, you know, when I, when I went out to dinner with this guy, you, you know, it's almost like a job interview. He was just asking me a million questions about what I was doing and what I did in the Marine Corps and that. Anyway, when I got back to the home office in, in Madison, Wisconsin, um, they immediately had me move into his office instead of, you know, on, on the in with the group that I was supposed to be working with. And it turned out that he headed up the, the firm's telecommunications practice. And after, you know, listening to me talk about what I did in the Marine Corps, he wanted me working with him. So despite all of that, you know, financial training that I had, I ended up doing, you know, it was like economics, but... Mm -hmm with an emphasis on telecom. And then years after that, um, I think I told you last time we tried this, you know, in 1996 is when the, the government passed the uh, Telecom Act. And part of what they were trying to do with the Telecom Act was introduce competition to telephone companies, you know, because they were these big monopolies. Yeah, I remember that. And telephone companies were required to sell off network elements to competitors at what's called forward-looking economic costs. That's the way it was defined in the act. Well, they didn't really say how this was supposed to be done, so it was like a consultants and lawyers full employment act of 1990s as we tried to determine what forward-looking economic <laughs> cost was. Okay. And then after that, then then doing these forward-looking economic cost studies for telephone companies. But in you know, I said all that to say, in the course of doing these cost studies, I needed information on cost. So when I was out at different trade shows and events, 
I would be networking with the sales guys, you know, because I needed that, their information. Okay. And it turned out that they liked, you know, how well I understood mechanics of what they were selling. So it was a, a transition out of consulting and into full-time sales, working for next-level communications, which ended up getting bought by Motorola. So I worked for Motorola for about eight years and then several other distributors of Motorola products after that. And again, you know, make, making a really good living off of what I learned to do in the Marine Corps as opposed to uh, going to college. That's amazing. It all it all fit together in the end, I guess. It, it does. But I mean, it gave me a very unique skill set. I mean, I, I could walk in and talk with the CEO of a telephone company and, and talk business and finance with him all day, justify a business case for, for getting that telephone company into the cable TV business. Mm-hmm. And then I could also talk to the engineers in the shop and, and show them how the equipment works. Uh, that that's a rare combination. That is, uh, I'm sure they were amazed on either side of that equation when they saw you talking one way or the other. <laughs> right. That's uh. So that's pretty much how you how you generated most of your stable income over those years. I'm imagining, or did you uh, supplement what you were doing in sales and as you were building up your uh, net worth sheet? I guess did you supplement that with types of investing in any real estate in particular? Well, the, the real estate investing came in um, right around 2010 time frame. You know, this is right after the big stock market crash and, and general economic crash in 2007-8 time frame. And I was just old enough at that point to realize, you know, I, I didn't want to have all of my money in the stock market where there was a potential for it to go lose 40% of its value. If you remember the market at that time, the S&P 500, just, just the index alone, dropped 40% that year. And that's huge. Yes, so, I mean, my, my immediate thought as a 40, mid-40s at that time was, holy crap, I mean, what happens if I retire and, and the market does this? And, you know, that's where my investments are at. You know, that, that's the difference between thinking you can retire and then all of a sudden the rug gets pulled out from under you. Or if you already retired, you know, you, you can't take as much income from your assets anyway. So that's when I decided, you know, that's, that's enough for the stock market. Let's look for something that's more safe and secure. And that, that's what made me look at real estate. Okay. So I imagine it was, um, I think you might have said fix and flip your first thing. Or what? what's your, if you don't mind, explain that. Uh, I guess your, your evolution of real estate investing. Well, I think I started like a lot of people. I mean, my idea of real estate investing at first was, fixing and flipping and, and getting rental properties. But I kind of gravitated towards um, the private lending side of it, you know, where I'd, I would buy a house and then sell it with owner financing as opposed to renting it. One, I didn't want to deal with renters. But two, just, just doing that meant that I, I, you know, I had some cash plus you know, I had the income from the, the loan. Or the flip side of that is just doing private lending. You know, Sure. At the time, I, you know, I thought it was the, the financial sophistication of it that interested me. But more in retrospect, you know, it, it's the risk that I liked about it. You know, because I had friends of mine, you know, asking me, it's like, Tom, how, how can you do that? How can you give $100,000 to a complete stranger? I mean, that, what if you lose it? Sure. And I was thinking, you know, well, I, I'm going to either get that house at a really good price because the house is worth more than a hundred thousand bucks or that person is going to pay me an outrageous rate of interest. So I'm coming out ahead one way or the other. And that's the, that's the beauty of private lending is that, you know, you, you've got security and collateral, you know, as long as you underwrite your loan, right, you're, you know, you're loaning some loan to value. So the house is worth much more than what you have in it. The worst case scenario is that you buy it at a very good discount. Absolutely. That makes sense uh, from a risk mitigation standpoint. And I think, if you could walk us through it again, I, because you shared this with me before, sort of three scenarios using $100,000 as a, as a round number that helps people think about that process in terms of risk mitigation. Well, when I'm trying to explain risk to people, risk-adjusted rate of return, I, I use this, this three, an example of three investors each, each investing their money in, in a $100,000 house. Just to show you that you know risk is not risk. There's there's better and safer ways of investing. So, it, investor A takes a hundred thousand dollars 
and buys a hundred thousand dollar house. You know, I don't know if that's realistic to anybody that's listening in California, but you know, <laughs> in other, other places in the country, let's just focus on the numbers and <laughs> keep it keep it round. Well, if this market, well, let's just say the year is two thousand six, and the market's going to crash thirty percent the following year. So investor A puts a hundred thousand dollars into a house, and a year later it's worth seventy thousand dollars. Well, that's equity risk. So he lost. 30% of his equity when the market collapsed. You know, if, he, if he tries to sell that house now, he's going to be out $30,000. Investor B is somebody who, you know, is on bigger pockets and they've heard that they should be using other people's money to do their investing and no money down. And he's got $35,000 saved up and he gets a hard money loan for $65,000 to buy that same $100,000 house. So now, you know, if it goes up in value, He's going to come out way ahead because he's, he's going to it's going to be a return on thirty three hundred thirty five thousand dollars instead of a hundred thousand dollars, right? So is yeah, so his cash on cash would be much higher than his the cash first on guy, cash, right? Okay. Well, let's, I mean, let's just let's just say that the value of the house goes from a hundred thousand to one hundred ten thousand. That's a ten thousand dollar gain. I mean, notwithstanding commissions and sales costs and all that sort of stuff, holding costs, it's a ten thousand dollar profit on a $35,000 investment. So it's, it's roughly a 30% profit. But that same $10,000 gain for investor A is only a 10% profit. Now that's cash on cash. Copy. Anyway, that's at a really high level. But anyway, when, when, when the following year comes and the value of the property declines, now investor B has $35,000 into a house that's only worth uh, $70,000 at that time. So he lost $30,000 of his $35,000 of equity that he put into that house because he still owes the bank or the hard money lender back that $65,000. So the, the leverage is great when you want to make money, but investors also need to realize the flip side of that is when the market goes down, your equity is the first thing to get wiped out. You're going to lose twice as much. Absolutely. So you know, in his case, you know, he lost 80-some percent of his investment without having a calculator. Yep. Now, in investor C, he's taking the, the safest route. He's, he's the hard money lender who lent lender B or uh, investor B the, the $65,000. So he's got $65,000 out, and, and one of two things should happen. Either the investor pays the high interest rate or the investor defaults and he takes the house. Well, a year later, the value of that house, instead of being 100000 is now 70000 so is the lender is getting nervous, but he has he lost any money yet? No, he's still five thousand ahead, right? No, he hasn't. So again, you know, there should only be two outcomes. You know, either he takes the house or he gets paid the high interest. As long as he did his underwriting properly. Now if if the market continues to tank, then then his position becomes more at risk. But that's a good explanation of of risk. You know, investor C is is has a secured loan investment instead of an equity position versus a leveraged position. And each of those has a different risk profile associated with it. I really so like a that. A 10% account. return is not a 10% return. It's not a 10% return. That makes sense. Copy. Well, thanks for stepping through that again, Tom. I mean, that's really, I really love that example. I took a few notes on it. It's just really uh, simple to follow, easy to understand, and crystal clear. And people can make their decisions about, you know, where they stand in terms of wanting to take risk and what their position is and their ability to to uh, lend or use leverage, et cetera. So a lot of people, so I, you know, I don't have a ton of listeners yet. Uh, re- podcast is relatively new. I've got a newsletter with like 65, 70 people on it. So most people listening to my podcast are going to be new investors and military veterans uh, and military members, uh, mostly for this podcast. I'm wondering if you might, given your experience in real estate investing, if you might give a what I like to call an early warning tip to investors. Early warning systems online. General quarters, general quarters, man your battle stations. This is not a drill. Repeat, this is not a drill. Well, the only advice I have in this market right now is just be careful. Because, you know, we're, we're many, many years now into a bull market. You know, so prices have been going up. You know, back, back when I got into it back in 2010, 11, 12 time frame, that was a great time to get in because we were, it was post-crash, and there were there were many bargains to be had. But it seems like that that economic collapse was 
so deep and so dramatic that everybody saw the opportunity. And unfortunately, too many people are seeing the opportunity too late in the game. So everybody and his uncle wants to be a real estate investor now. There's just, there's a lot of new investors out there over the last few years. And it, it's a dangerous time because prices have been bid up by people that really don't have the financial sophistication to understand, you know, analyzing a deal. So, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're a new investor and you come across a great deal, you, you really have to ask yourself, why did they, all the other guys skip over this? Because the experienced investors probably found that deal too and didn't take it for some reason or another. Absolutely. Just, you know, my advice is just to just be careful. Whether you have money or have no money, you know, you, you, you know three of the investors fall into two categories. You know, those that have money, they've been working a, a job and they've got, like me, they, you know, they had it in the stock market and they don't feel comfortable with that anymore. Or they have no money and they, they look at real estate investing as the means to, to get a business going on their own. Sure. So those are the guys looking for the no money down, you know, strategies. Absolutely. And I guess either way, to your point, either way, right now in today's market, you need to be really conservative with your underwriting and know what you're doing. Exactly. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, you know, some people get too deep in the weeds and, you know, can't make a decision, right? There's analysis paralysis. Sure. But at the same time, you don't want to be crazy. You really got to ask yourself, what, <laughs> did, am I really the first one to come across this opportunity or... You know, did did other experienced people pass on this opportunity? Definitely, and don't don't they talk. Did, why? Don't talk yourself into appreciation. Don't uh, talk yourself into lowering expenses and increasing rents year after year because it can't keep going. I I wouldn't think the way it is. It doesn't always go up. <laughs> so, Tom, uh, is a question I ask uh, the listeners. You're only about the uh, fifth interview. Well, you're maybe the fifth and sixth interview, I guess we could say. Uh, of mine so far <laughs> since I'm interviewing you twice, but it's about, I, I like to uh, find out from um, seasoned investors when they look at uh, investments and markets, if you know how they go about developing their strategy. Now I know you've pretty much outlined why you've gravitated towards uh, secure investments and on the debt side, I should, secure debt. Uh, but within that context, uh, I think of investors as some people are, are really geographically oriented in terms of looking at where the markets are. Some people like to focus really on asset class. They're all in multi-units or single families. Some people are opportunity investors, just wherever the opportunity is, anywhere in the country, any type of asset. And some people are into niche. And of those four, I wonder where you stand if one or more of those categories or all the above? I don't think that I fall into any of those categories. None? My, my favorite rule in finance is the rule of 72. Okay. You know, if, you, if you take the interest rate that you can earn on your money and divide it into 72, you, you have the number of years that it takes to double your money. So anytime I do anything, that is always in my mind. How, how quickly can I double my money? And how many times can I double my money before I want to retire or before I die? So I'm all about the rate of return at this point in my life. Okay. Whether it's whether it's tax liens or notes or so, you know, it's I like the safety and security of of debt type instruments or tax liens because you have such a high um, stake. You know, you've, you've got such a protected stake in the house. Sure. Does that make sense? I mean, absolutely. You're, you're buying the house essentially for a lien on the tax if, if, if you know that person doesn't pay the tax off. But does it matter to you where it's at or whether it's single family or a multifamily or, you know, I mean, to that point, there must be some other analysis. I, I put the analysis off on uh, a PIP group, Platinum Investment Properties. They're out of uh, South Carolina. Okay. Got it. And, you know, they basically, they do all the due diligence. They go to the auctions. They bid on the, the they, they manage the whole thing. Okay, so it's somewhat a dispersed risk by you know people who know what they're doing in a larger pool of analysis as opposed to you going out and identifying one property, you know, West Palm Beach or Broward County and offering private right. lending on it. Okay. I'm trying I came to- across Platinum Investment Properties back when I first discovered self-directed IRAs because I, I gravitated to Equity Trust, who was at that time, one of the only ones that I was aware of, you know, and nobody knew what a self-direct IRA back, was back then. And Tip Group had a presentation on tax liens on their website, and it, it sounded really good, and I, I talked to them about it. So I ended up you know, placing some money with them, and it really worked out well. You know, I, you know the, nice, the nice thing about them is, is they, they do all the due diligence 
but the investor doesn't have to do anything. It all depends on how you view your own time and how you want to handle that. So I, I think that's right. great, great advice. And uh, along those lines, so you mentioned a couple things. One, you, I, I would like it if you could explain real quick for listeners, process of bundled notes and maybe secondary market notes just for those who don't understand. Uh, a lot of people get high quickly on reading about uh, note investing, uh, but it's a little more complicated, I think. Well, the, the thing is, is where are you going to get your notes from? And I think most people are, are, that buy them onesie-twosie mm-hmm. are buying them from hedge funds or some kind of fund that is, is, you're, is selling off the junk out of the portfolio of loans that they bought. So you know, when, when a bank sells off a pool of notes, they want to sell off the whole thing for, to one buyer and not deal with everything onesie-twosie. So there's, there's tons of funds out there that, that buy these hedge funds, private equity funds, and they'll take a, they'll take a pool of 100 notes, and non-performing notes, and know that, well, and, and they're going to buy them at like 22 cents on the dollar. I, I, these numbers are several years ago. Sure. But I, I don't know where things are at nowadays. You know, but if you're buying up a pool of non-performing notes for 22 cents on the dollar, there, there's a, a good chance that you can go in there and get a lot of those notes re-performing. I mean, so if you, if you bought it for, again, one-fifth or one-quarter of the value, if, if you can get some portion, I mean, just by talking to the owner and saying, look, instead of $200,000 you owe me, why don't you give me back, why don't you give me $100,000 and under new terms? And you can afford to do that because you bought it for one quarter of the price or 22%. So if you can get, if you can identify all the loans in that pool that have a good chance of being reperforming, you know, that's where you spend your effort. And then the ones that you know you can't get reperforming and that people abandon it, walk away, ran away, whatever, those, you know, you sell them off to other investors. You know, maybe they want the property as uh, they're going to fix and flip it, turn it into a rental, whatever. Okay. So there's tremendous amount of money for them. To, you know, if they can get that pool re- or some of that pool reperforming, they can sell those notes off for 50, 60 cents on the dollar. So they, they can triple or, you know, double or triple their money just by getting it reperforming. Okay. And then if they can, if they can monetize the ones that are, uh, junk essentially, you know, that, that's just more money in their pocket. Just more on top of it. But, okay. but the, important, the poor investors who are, are, are buying the junk, they've been listening to all these seminars on, on all the different exit strategies you can have with notes, meaning you can get them reperforming. You can, you know, if you don't get reperforming, you can inherit it and fix it up and sell it. Well, the reality is when you're buying that junk, you're not going to get it reperformed. And more than likely, you're, you're going to be fixing and flipping it. Sure. And, and you have the delay of, you have to hold that paper and through the entire foreclosure process. You know, Lord knows how long that can last, right? Your, your money is tied up for a long time. Definitely. No, I'm glad. Thank you very much for giving that experienced uh, view on notes because I've heard a lot about it. And I, I, uh, have a friend who's part of a group. He's a he's a retired marine, and uh, he is he's all in on notes right now. Uh, so I'm curious to follow up with him in a few weeks here and find out how his group is doing because they got out of their um, a lot of the rentals they had in the Miami area uh, to do all note investing. So I uh, appreciate that perspective, Tom. So before I uh, I'm about to give you uh, I don't know how many minutes, 10 or as many more as you want to take to delve into one area of specialty that you, that you really know a lot about that a lot of us struggle to understand, and that is about uh, structured cash flows, I would say, and the utilization of uh, indexed universal life insurance or uh, how, to, how to be your own bank, all the things around that. And so I'm hoping for you to uh, lay out uh, as well as you can with voice without pictures for a few of us to help us get the high level of, of how powerful that is. But before, before we do that, I want to circle back on something you talked about last week. And I want you to get from Wisconsin down to Florida and how you did that and how you got into a new career. Uh, after 2011, I just had this epiphany that, it was, you know, I had a, a nice big dream house on a lake south of, of Madison. And one, one day I was just out on my sailboat and I was thinking to myself, like, why am I doing this? You know, I'm, I'm working a, a job I didn't like. 
you know, dealing with you know, bosses and all the stuff that goes along with a, a corporate job. And it was all just, I mean, I made a good income, but it was all going into the house. And I just had this epiphany of, you know, knowing that I actually had enough money in the bank that I could go out, buy a saleable, you know, live off my investment income, you know, forever. So I kind of put that dream into reality and, you know, put the house on the market, moved down to Florida. And uh, the only thing that kept us from actually buying a sailboat and going cruising was that I had two teenage daughters who absolutely rebelled against the idea of, of living on a sailboat and, and <laughs> they, they wanted to go to high school and be with their friends. So absolutely, I'm down in Florida, you know, and I've got, you know, in the process of, of placing my money, you know, getting it. You know, this has been going on since like 2010 of, of getting money out of the market and getting into investments. And I, I entertained the idea of being a full-time real estate investor, but I wasn't sure how best to, to do it. You know, I didn't, I knew I could just place my money and earn a good rate of return. So when, when you've got money, you just need to put it to work. You know, for real estate investing, you want to use your head, right? You use other people's money. So those are two separate things. I didn't want to use my money for that. So once all the money was, was put to work, you know, I, I realized I didn't really want to be a wholesaler, you know, sending out tons of letters, making tons of calls. Um, didn't want to be a house flipper because I didn't want to analyze deals all day that you find, trying to find that needle in a haystack that makes sense. I didn't want to be walking through stinky houses. I mean, <laughs> if you've done it, I mean, some of the, you know, the, the crazy cat lady house that had, you know, 28 cats and smells like <laughs> that. <laughs> so, you, know, you can't take too many of those. Oh, oh God. That's very different. Uh, no, a seven unit that I walked through last year is coming to mind. <laughs> when I originally went to, to grad school, I had to, my goal was to become a financial advisor. And I actually, there was no financial advisor at that time. It was a stockbroker, you know, and now stockbrokers are wealth advisors or whatever they call themselves. And I just decided, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take that route. You know, I'm just going to start over again. And I, I started with an insurance license and, you know, with the goal of eventually getting a, a securities license. But my, my first day on the job, and I shouldn't say the first day, but with one of the companies, we, there was a, a meeting where sales manager wanted to present an illustration to us. And then for your listeners, an illustration is just a, a, a life insurance presentation. It, it's literally showing you your premium dollars going in, how much cash value you have in a permanent policy, and what the death benefit is. And this particular company specialized in life insurance retirement plans. So it was using the cash value to generate tax-free income for retirement. So they, they did what are called overfunded life insurance policies where you're buying as little death benefit as you can possibly get in order to get as much cash value stuffed in that policy as you can, you can legally put there. So the goal is the cash value, not the death benefit when you think of life insurance. Well, on this pro presentation that the, we were looking at, it was showing a, a client with a million dollars of cash value taking $100,000 a year of income tax-free for the rest of his life. And I knew from my time, you know, in grad school and working for Smith Barney as a as part-time portfolio analyst, that it, financial advisors use what's called the 4% rule to determine how much income somebody can reasonably expect to take out of their portfolio without running out of money before they die. So if you had a million dollars in a brokerage account, theoretically, you should only be able to take out about $40,000 a year without risking running out of money because of the ups and downs of the market or spending power, uh, purchasing power because of inflation. So I'm sitting there scratching my head wondering how the heck can you get $100,000 out of a million forever? It just it didn't make sense to me, especially when the cash value is only growing at 7%. So I took home the, the illustration, you know, all the sales materials, the product guidebooks, and, and you know, poured over them that night. And, and that's when it really dawned on me that the secret behind a, a policy loan, the way you access the cash value in a policy, is it's a loan against the policy the cash value. So the cash value is the collateral, and it never leaves your policy. All policy loans are literally the insurance company making making you a loan of, of their money, just like a bank would, using your cash value as a collateral. So every year, the insurance company, they know your cash value is growing and appreciating in value, so they simply loan you the money to pay themselves the interest and they tack it onto the bill. 
that's the magic of why you can get so much income out of a life insurance policy. So I was sold at that point, right? That, that this is a much better place to put your money because you're not exposed to the market risk, but you can get a nice market return and, and you can access the tax-free and, and more of it. But the other thing is, is the real estate investor in me is thinking, well, wait a minute. I mean, if I, if I can use my cash value as collateral, you know, would it be possible to take my money and design an overfunded short pay, short pay policy where I'm stuffing that baby full of cash over like five year period and then borrow against that cash value to do real estate investing, whether it's buying a note or whatever. And, and here, here's the basic math behind it. If you, if you can put your money into an asset that's growing at 6% for cash value, and you can borrow against that money at prime, which is about five and a quarter right now, then anything you do with that five and a quarter money, like invested at 10% in a note, is, is adding value. So the return less the interest rate that you're paying on the money of the loan is that profit is on top of whatever the cash value did. So your money is literally working in two places at one time. Got it. And I went out that after that, and I wanted to prove it to myself. So I built a spreadsheet that showed, you know, the cash value accumulation over time. And if I borrowed against that cash value at five percent and invested it at ten, you know, what what am I building in in incremental value outside the policy? And then, of course, you compare that with, okay, what if I just took all that money and invested it in real estate directly without the complexity of licensure? I've got a model that literally shows A versus B and that doing the life insurance is more will build more wealth than simply investing in real estate directly. And that's that's the basic math of it. That's beautiful. I even I could understand that the way you laid it out. <laughs> that's really good. That well, model if, you, if, you, if you'll if you'll humor me for a few minutes, I just wanna I just wanna give like a life insurance one oh one for for your listener because uh if I put myself in the position of somebody who's maybe recently out of the service, is young, they don't know how a permanent life insurance policy works. Maybe they don't even know the difference between permanent, 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 and uh, term insurance. Sure, go but ahead. If you humor me, term insurance is is very easy for people to understand. You know, if you it's just like a car policy, you have it for one year, and if you have a claim, it pays. But at the end of the year, it's done. So with term life insurance, you know, you can get a million dollars of coverage for X amount per month for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, or, or just one year at a time. But, you know, the insurance company is selling it to you because they know there's a high likelihood of you outliving it, right? That, that's where they make their money. Permanent life insurance, on the other hand, is going to pay a death benefit to somebody, to somebody someday with absolute certainty, whether you live to till tomorrow or age 120, it will pay a death benefit. So the life insurance 101 is, if, if you were the insurance company and you were designing a permanent life insurance product, how would you do it? And I just and this, this is going to help you understand what, what the cash value of the policy represents. Okay. So if, if I was the insurance company, I mean, first off, if I know a 30-year-old is going to live to about 85, they've got about 55 years of life expectancy left. And if they've got a million-dollar policy, I want to make sure that, worst-case scenario, if you live to be 85, that that person saves up their own death benefit. So part of that premium is a savings component. And, and the money is not going to be sitting idle. They're going to be investing it. So insurance companies buy U.S. treasuries. They buy bonds. They buy a lot of mortgages in the secondary market. And you know, and all things, again, back to my risk analysis, all things that are safe, secured, and, and are going to earn a nice, predictable rate of return. So the cash value is not sitting idle. It, it, you know, every time you pay a premium, you know, that money goes into this account where it's being invested and it's growing at a nice, safe rate. And it's projected to reach your death benefit by the time you reach your natural life expectancy. Now, the flip side of it is the insurance company has the risk of you dying tomorrow. I mean, you could step off of a curb and get hit by a bus. So Insurance companies do what they do, which is they sell term insurance. And they're basically putting money into the pool to cover that one year's worth of risk for the gap between the cash value and the death benefit. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So when you think of, you know, people always saying buy term and invest the difference, that's what the insurance company is doing under the hood. 
That's what I was raised on. The premium is designed to save up the death benefit, and the term is just there to protect the the gap or risk to the insurance company. So over time, as the person accumulates cash value, the amount at risk to the insurance company goes down because the person is saving up their own death benefit. So that term becomes smaller and smaller and smaller as the cash value grows. So, but at some point in time, you know, well, actually, at any point in time, the, the, the beautiful thing is, is, and this is written into the state statutes of, of all 50 states. It, it, what the statutes say is basically, life insurance companies are required to make loans to their policyholders secured by the cash value of those policies. It doesn't say borrow from the policy. It says are required to make loans to customers secured by the cash value. So the beautiful thing about that is unlike a, an IRA or a 401k where you can't touch the money till you're 50, 59 and a half, you, you can access the cash value every day between now and the day you, you decide to retire. So if, if you can, if you've already got your retirement plan in place with that cash value, so to speak, mm-hmm. meaning you're going to take loans for retirement income, as I described earlier, well, even when you've got just a little bit of cash value, you could take a loan, use it to invest in a bond or something, and put the money back. And and when you when you do, I mean, it's, it's been growing all that time, right? It's still been and, growing, and even though the value yeah. you created outside the policy is, is extra. That's the magic, apparently, right? It's still growing inside, as if it were there, even right. though you've got the money outside working, like you said, in both places at once. That's really good. Anybody who, who researches it, um, infinite banking, bank on yourself, um, 702 plans, they all go by different names. These, these are things I came across independently. Uh, you know, this whole strategy I discovered on my own, but then realized other people were already doing it. Okay. So there's, there's other systems out there, you know, infinite banking, bank on yourself. The only problem with those guys is they don't design policies right up to the max. I mean, because there's, there's a legal limit on how much cash you can put into something before it's not considered insurance anymore. And, and you want a policy that's designed right up to that limit, but not over. And what the infinite banking people do is, is they, they teach you that you're creating your own bank that you're going you're gonna to borrow from, and then you're going to pay yourself back with interest. So you're building up your own personal bank through this interest that you're paying yourself. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, the, the problem is, is that interest that you're technically paying yourself, that's, that's being used to purchase paid-up additions in the policy. And if there was room for any additional premium or paid-up additions to go into the policy, they should have been put in at the beginning, not through this weird mechanism of paying yourself interest. Oh, I see what you're you know, saying. I, I want my bank to be as large as possible on day one. And just to give you some like real numbers, if I put $100,000 of premium into a policy, I mean, I'm designing a policy for, for high cash value. I've got half a million bucks in the bank, or oh, let's make it 250000 okay. I'm going to put $50,000 a year into a policy every year for five years. And the insurance company is going to take fees out of it, right? I mean, they got to make money, and people think that those fees are very expensive. But the reality is, is about 15% is what's going to the insurance company, and it's only in those first 10 years. So out of a dollar of premium, you're going to get about 85 cents of cash value in my design, when it's funded right up to the max. But in an infinite banking policy, and I don't mean to pick on them, but it's just, you know, if you're going to use this strategy, you want a policy with as much cash value as you can get. In their designs, you're going to get a policy with about 65 cents of cash value relative to premium. So what you, if you put a dollar into something, it's a dollar that you could have put into something else, right? So you have an option to make 10% on your money. Well, if I put a dollar into something making ten percent, I should have a dollar ten at the end of the year. Absolutely. With life insurance, I've got <clears throat> I put a dollar into it, but I've got eighty-five cents now. So I was like, "Well, crap! I'm, I'm fifteen cents behind already." But the cool thing is, I've also got a line of credit for eighty-five cents. So to the extent I can leverage or utilize that line of credit, I can make other investments. So I make that same ten percent investment, right? So that eighty-five cents makes ten percent. So I made eighty-five cents. Actually, let's, let's speak in percentage. Well, let me, let me close that loop off. I'm sorry. I'm okay if I'm rambling here. No, that's okay. That's good. The main point I want to make here is that you, you've got a dollar seventy that's going to work for you. You've got $0.85 cents of cash value plus a line of credit for $0.85. Cents. You've really got a dollar seventy going to work for you. 
but but you got the interest on that that line of credit. So your dollar turned in eighty five cents, which you're thinking, okay, I lost that eighty five cents. But the important thing is, is you've got a line of credit against that eighty five cents that you can put out there as well. So so really, you've got a dollar seventy of your of that dollar going to work for you. So Absolutely. now now it's just a matter of you know can you make money with that borrowed money to, to make up the difference. Got it. And, so and the you- answer is. Yes. So in the other case, you would be like like the example we gave before. If you had a dollar and you were getting ten percent, um, ten dollars worth of interest at most. In this case, if you got ten percent, in, in both places, hypothetically, uh, seventeen dollars, right? You'd be you you're able yeah. to work both. I think it might be helpful just to walk through some like easy examples just to kind of show it. Sure. Yeah. If you don't I mean, mind. So without any life insurance whatsoever, you know, if, if you have an investment where you can go out and make 10% on it, you're going to pay tax on that entire 10% gain. So if you're in the 40% tax bracket, and I can, I can, you can pick a tax bracket, it doesn't matter, but that 10% return less 4% in taxes is going to leave you with a net of 6% if you didn't do life insurance, right? Okay. So with the life insurance model, that, that dollar turns into 85 cents. So now we've, we've got to play with these these other numbers. But a dollar, well, if you, if you make the same 10% rate of return and the interest is now a business expense, and, and mind you, I need to circle back on this too. When, when you take these policy loans, you want to do it from a, a third-party bank, not from the insurance company. And the reason is, is you want the tax deductibility of it. You want it to be a business. Policy loans themselves are not tax deductible. So I would, barring that little aside there, if you make 10%, on an investment, and you borrowed money at five percent to do it, you 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 take your revenues and you subtract your expenses, and you're left with a five percent profit. And now you're going to pay tax on five percent, not all ten percent. Okay. So you reduced your taxable income by using the strategy. Oh, okay. That's a key part. I see what you're saying. And the other thing is, so if we're in a forty percent tax bracket on five percent income, that's going to be two percent loss. But we're walking away with. But mind you, the cash value has been working all this time too. So if the cash value earned 6%, that's 6 and 3 is, is 9. And now, you know, just understand that that 9% return is on 85 cents of your original investment. So I'll ask you, would you rather have a dollar growing at 6% or 85 cents growing at 9%? I think the answer is 85 at 9%. <laughs> it's, it's it makes sense. Compounding, yeah. you know, hopefully, hopefully everybody listening can understand compounding interest. You know, that, yes, you're starting off with less money to start with, but it's going to be growing at a faster rate. So at some point in the future, it's going to catch up and surpass. And I'm sure everybody knows, I hope everybody knows what a compounding growth curve looks like. Sure, it'll, qu- it'll, it'll quickly over- up into the right. It'll quickly overtake it. Absolutely. It'll, it'll quickly overtake it. So, you know, you don't go into this kind of strategy hoping for a, a one-year home run. You, you go into it planning on, on building, life, uh, building wealth over a lifetime, not, you know, one year at a time. That but makes sense. This... That little incremental difference in, in returns is going to make a, a huge difference over time. It makes sense. The It also makes sense to me when I hear the smart people with big money have used this strategy for a long time and exactly. the rest of us middle-class schmucks are still trying to figure it out. So this is really good, uh, really good value that you're giving us here, Tom, today. And I really appreciate you giving those examples and also for spending so much time with me again today, uh, despite the glitch last week, I really appreciate it. You didn't have to come on again after we lost the file last <laughs> week, but, uh, you did, you did. My, so. my pleasure. And, uh, and I really appreciate it. I wanted to ask you, uh, before I let you go, a couple of quick things. One is, uh, do you have a favorite book? I know besides your website, which is a wealth of information, as well as some of your posts on Bigger Pockets, do you have any favorite books you advise uh, new investors might maybe read? Um, I, I think the, the Robert Kiyosaki book, um, The Cashflow Quadrant, is one of the best for, for really painting a really good picture of why you want to build a business and not own a job, per se. It, it's a really good foundational book for, for understanding wealth building, finance. Stuff. That makes sense. Absolutely. Like you've said before, the whole, the whole series 
And I did um, explain that cash flow quadrant in my first episode, my intro to the podcast for Patriots. If anybody wants to go back and listen to that, I give a visual of the quadrant and how it uh, hooked me a little over 20 years ago. Uh, definitely. Even though I somehow, I'm back in the E quadrant again. Uh, but <laughs> I'm across the quadrant. <laughs> try to try to get over to that I quadrant and stay, but found myself back in the E quadrant. So I am... Uh, uh, that's interesting, but I, I totally agree. That's all right. I, I own a job. I haven't built a business yet. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. And the other thing is, uh, uh, Tom, if you could just remind listeners of the uh, best way to get in touch with you and learn more about uh, your business and maybe how people can uh, actually get involved in uh, putting their money to work. My website is, is the best place to go to get information on, on all, of, all of everything we've talked about here. Um, Unlike a lot of websites, I mean, I personally hate when I'm researching something and I come to a website where all they've got is like some fluff on it and, and mm-hmm. you've got to enter your email and name or call them to, to actually talk to somebody to learn anything about it. Me, I, I've got everything on my website. So I mean, if, if you want information without talking to a sales guy, just go to my website. <laughs> it's all there. And I mean, Really, the, the keys to everything I do, my, my competitors could, could come there and you know all, all my proprietary information is, is out there. It's just I don't believe anybody else can do what I do. You know, it's, it's, uh, I have a rare mix of, of talent, right? You know, I, mean, yeah. I, shouldn't, I shouldn't, that, that sounds braggadocious, but I like you know, it. it's the business and technical and real estate and finance all you know under one roof. I mean, I, I don't think many financial advisors have that mix. That's that's why I call my business innovative retirement strategy. It's because I really truly believe that what I'm doing is innovative and not traditional. And I would agree. And I, I agree 100%. And I've looked through it. I uh, want to look through it more. Uh, I'm definitely going to take more time over the next couple of months to to dig deeper and uh, touch base with you on my own personal strategies in this area. But uh, I appreciate it, and I appreciate what you do on that. Uh, on that website as well, InnovativeRetirementStrategies.com, the IRS you want on your side. And uh, uh, thanks again, Tom. Thanks for your service to our country. Thanks for taking the time here today and for everything you do. And it's been a, a pleasure talking to you. My pleasure. Thanks for doing it. I'm proud to be your host. I'm privileged to have served, and I'm grateful for all your sacrifices. Until next time. Because the flag still stands for freedom. And they can't take that away And I'm proud to be an American Where at least I know I'm free But I won't forget the men who died Who gave that right to me And I gladly stand up next to you And defend her still today Cause there ain't no doubt 